Welcome to Fireside with Voxcake, a podcast for professional public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of Voxgate.com, which is an online community and service for speakers and event professionals. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us on the Fireside with Fox Gig podcast. Um, how are you doing today? Really good. We're getting a little bit of sunshine, so that always makes me that bit happier. Yeah, sunshine in this part of the world is, uh, is definitely something to be, uh, definitely something to savor. Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, I'm going to start with an easy question and then a, then a, then a hard one. Uh, do you, uh, can you tell me about, uh, because this podcast is about public speaking, um, can you tell me about the most successful talk you ever gave? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think for me, one of the most successful ones was in front of a group of young people. Um, it, it, and it was many years ago. It was the start of the journey, I think, where I stopped looking at it as public speaking and more about talking to people and brought more of myself into a talk, um, in talking to a large group of young people. With my background in education, you spend a lot of time talking in front of classrooms. But as I moved up in leadership, you, you start having larger and larger groups. And this is when I was taking on a new role and asked to, to address a group of about 400 young people and standing up and talking, that different mindset for me and being willing to really engage with the people and bring more of myself, uh, worrying a little less on what I had to say to them, but wanting to really communicate with them. The feedback I had was was fantastic and for me began that journey to how I approach public speaking today it's uh, it's it's great when you get that energy from the audience and but what do you mean specifically is when you say bring yourself uh, to the to the performance does that mean personal stories or is it is absolutely it I, th I think it's about engaging but also the one the the journey I think for many people is to really understand that to enjoy, to make the most of public speaking is creating that engagement. And so it is about, in terms of content, putting a bit more of yourself, of stories, of details that allow the audience to see you as a person rather than a speaker. But it's also using that engagement in terms of our body language, our eye contact, our movement to to be there in the room with the people you know for me I shudder whenever I have to to see a podium in the in the room and I know that there's a time and a place to use that as a prop within public speaking but for me being able to feel comfortable to move on stage to look at the audience heaven forbid never look at my screen or the screen behind me but to, to talk sometimes the best talks are those that we leave the PowerPoint deck behind and definitely leave those words out of the deck to, to read off people and to be willing. It's always a scary moment to think about how we engage with audience through questions, through, through eye contact. But the more that you do that and the more that you confidently do that, 
the more the audience really begins engaging. And I think, as you said, it is that feeling of picking up an energy that you can then ride through through a speaking engagement. And does that mean taking questions from the audience during your talk? Ooh, no, I no. do that in some. And I, I think there's, <laughs> you, you have to look at, you know, your context. I always say that, you know, it's the homework that you do before you, you make a, a speech and your preparation is to thinking who are in the room, what do they need and want? Um, what do I need to get across in them? And I also build in that risk factor, you know, how much, how edgy do I want to be in that piece? So I have done ones where talks where we have a Twitter stream going up behind us and then then play off that. Ooh, that I consider scary. really, really um, adrenaline speaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Other times, you know, and if it's, if it's a high risk audience, I will ask a few questions that just allow people to nod or shake their head. Um, I, I tend to, the, the raising hands, I think you're setting yourself up for some difficulties because that's asking for a certain degree of vulnerability from your audience that you can't assume. So it's, it's the sort of thing I would potentially use in a talk if I knew that I could build the engagement where people are willing to raise their hands. Because everybody, you know, I think our, that conditioning from school, the minute you raise a hand, you have the potential of, of being called on. And, and as an audience, they don't want to do it. And I also found the people most likely to want to raise their hand and wanting to engage are sometimes those people who want to take your talk in very different directions. So it's that kind of thinking beforehand and then reading your audience to know how deep, whether it's just asking a rhetorical question and then commenting on people's uh, nods or shaking your head or laughter to all the way through, as I said, Twitter and throwing open questions. And it, it varies from context, how much time you have and and how much adrenaline you want pumping through your body <laughs> during the talk. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of... Uh audience engagement of course there's 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 positive engagement but there's also negative engagement uh, and you you've got to the point in your public speaking you know where you're operating at, at, a, at a pretty high level and you do a lot of it um, and I think a lot of a lot of people who listen to this podcast are still at the aspirational stage um, but let me ask questions about negative interactions um, for example, heckling. Have you ever been heckled and how do you deal with that? I, I wouldn't say openly heckling, although as a teacher, you, yeah, well, okay. you, you would face <laughs> some, some heckling, but you, you've got a little yeah. more power in that situation. But if I look at, I can remember giving a talk once in a crowded room full of teachers. I was outside education by that point. And I got, um, during the Q&A session, I got quite an aggressive, unhappy woman um, was firing questions at me to the point where you do find yourself the color rising and you're trying to stay on top of it. Throughout that, I tried to be very polite, very respectful, um, take on board, which was, you know, do all of those sort of engagement things that you do, try to find common ground where you can agree with them, but go a different direction. I got to the end, you know, feeling, God, that was really hard. And what was interesting, if you handle it calmly, politely, um, respectfully, you can quite often feel the audience come with you. It was really interesting at the end of my, that talk that I had a lot of people coming up to me saying really positive things. I think it's remembering when you're talking to a group, if you do get an angry, a grumpy, a negative voice, just because no one jumps in to defend you or your view doesn't mean it's not widely held. It just means there's one person who's willing to do it. And as crowds, we tend to let another person deal with it. So I would know that in dealing with 
you know, at, when I was a, a head teacher, I could have some some very difficult conversations with large groups of people, parents, whether it be unions, teachers, yeah. students, etc. And my my key learning there was homework beforehand. Do you understand who's in there, and that you can talk about? Well, I understand how you would feel this, but I know from talking to two other people that that you keep yourself calm enough that you can look to understand the consensus of the room. So you may get, see that while one person is saying very strongly, yes, there's a lot of body language in the room that says there's a no. And then depending on your purpose of your talk, you know, be willing to concede. Well, you may be right there. And I'd love to talk to you about that more. So it's, again, remember to treat it as much as you can about a conversation. If you've got somebody who just won't be quiet, just won't be told, I think it's a, it's a respectful thing to them and to the audience because nobody likes to be held hostage by the grumpy one is to say, you know, I really am pleased you raised that. And why don't we talk about this at the end of the talk? I'd be happy to grab a coffee or carry this on by email. So that you're you're creating that sense of dialogue, but you're not making everyone hold hostage in those really awkward situations. They can be very awkward. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've, I've had some situations where um, not so much somebody who's angry, but someone who uh, has a particular axe to grind or a particular viewpoint yeah. and completely dominates the question session afterwards. Um, Absolutely. So it's not an adversarial situation as such. It's more of a, a yeah. crowd. You've got somebody who wanted to be up at the podium with you. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing to remember is for most audiences, they're smart enough to get that as well. And so as long as you are respectful from there and don't let them do it, I think there are times to say, you know, do that sort of offline discussion comment where you say, you know, I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you've raised it. And I'd be happy to carry on the coffee. But, you know, because we have other people, let's move on to that and that sort of piece. I have seen some people where sometimes smart facilitators say, and I think this because they're trying to preempt that, to say, actually, let's take three or four questions from the audience and then we'll deal with them. And then that allows you to subtly juggle which ones you want to give the most airtime to and, and the most um, uh, attention to. I think this is one of those one of those uh, situations where, as a speaker, you're really grateful for a great MC or a great facilitator. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They can really save your skin <laughs> in that in that situation. Absolutely. Uh, but so I think, I, given that a lot of your people are beginners and aspiring to do that, I think the the bit is allowing humanity in your speech and without losing your cool it is okay to say something like you know i'm really sorry and i don't have an answer for that but you know if you leave your details i'd like to come back to it's it's remembering sometimes if you from the start have tried to engage your audience and create a sense of dialogue you will have them with you and and for most contexts in which most of us find ourselves giving talks people are happy for people to do well I can remember one particular horrible disaster. So I, you know, I had one or two talks that I had to give a lot, but I thought, I, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting stale with that. I'm going to try something really different, a really different kind of deck, and I'm going to do this very differently. So it was something I was less confident on. And as I stood up to talk in front of about 80 people for business breakfast, and this is going on, and because I don't talk to my deck, I glance at it, but it was a highly visual deck. I was really pleased with that. Yeah. And suddenly I could read my audience going crazy, just you could tell something was going wrong they're looking back and forth they're looking awkward they're looking past me and i turn around and it is your worst nightmare on the giant screen that is running off the host laptop it says windows update 
300 files to update. Please wait. Do not turn off. And I could see, and I could see, you know, the, the organizers diving around to try and fix the laptop, etc. That was there. Yeah, it was just there. And the thing was, I just turned and although I'm dying inside, I just sort of laughed and said, well, this one's going to be fun. Let's see where we go with the talk. And by, by putting myself with them on it, not, you know, <laughs> maybe as I wanted to burst into tears and run from the stage, et cetera, and then continue talking from that piece. Again, I got incredible feedback on that speech just because so many people in the room were probably sitting there thinking, oh, thank God I'm not her. You know, and everybody looking up there thinking there, but for the grace of God, go I. So I think it is knowing and holding your nerve, keeping your head, because things will go wrong. And in my speeches, I always plan for something to go wrong. I plan for the deck to break, for the laptop to explode, for the volume not to work. And so if it happens, I can just kind of laugh. And if it doesn't happen, then I feel quite smug and pleased at how well that went. <laughs> it does, um, and, and things do go wrong. Uh, uh, that situation, uh, the interesting thing about those situations, I think, is you're right. The, there's a lot of goodwill from the audience for you as a speaker to begin with. And in a way, the cringiness and embarrassment they feel is almost worse than yours as a speaker. Oh, yeah. Wrong. Yeah. Oh, and I, say, and I say particularly in this part of the world where you tend to have very polite audiences. Yes. You know, and you would say here in the UK, and I know the same in Ireland, you know, we, we, there's nothing more painful than an awkward or, or an uh, impolite moment. So the audience is willing you to do well. Um, and so if you give them that sense of, calm and smiling humanity, they engage well to it. And it, it also goes back to always going, always know at the heart what you want to say, not word perfect, but what is the message? What is the thing? And if you've really got that grounded within yourself, then things going wrong that make it not word perfect, make it, make it a little jumpy here and there are okay, because you've got the core of the message, not the presentation, not the deck. Um, and so when things go wrong and when you feel the world sort of crumbling around your ears, if you're holding to that message, being human, the, the audience is actually more likely to listen to. Let's, uh, let's move on to the second question, um, which, is, uh, which is the difficult one. Now, be honest. Now, what was the worst talk you ever gave? Oh, two. Two come to mind. <laughs> one of them is, was, was a real formative moment. This is when I was 18 years old. Okay. I lived in the U.S. I was elected by the student body to be one of three people who gave a speech, sort of a commencement speech at, at graduation. And this was, you know, I'm in the ripe age of 18 and there's, I was at a large school, so there must have been two or 3,000 people, there, parents, students, everything. And I was the uh, third speaker. And at that stage, that was back when, you know, you're nervous. So I had typed out my talk in all the little typewritten pages because this was in the ancient days of having typewriters. And, um, my my talk we each of our talks were stacked under the podium and the speaker before me as he finished he nudged and and knocked and what i didn't realize is my speech fell down the back of the podium oh, no. and it was that moment of standing up in front of those what felt like millions of eyeballs talking and 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 going down to pick up my talk and realizing it's not there and having to sort of come up pop up from behind the podium and say I'll be with you in just a moment as I went down to get it. We did find it. It did go okay. But that terrible moment, and, and that for me was the crystallization of always know what you want to talk about. You know, never be tied to your notes. 
The second one is an adult that was the most awful talk. Okay. Um, it was it was at BET, which is a in in London, a really big education technology show. It's it's a zoo, um, and mostly a trade fair. Teachers are going, and I was asked to come and give a talk, and it was in the round to about two hundred people, but in the middle of a conference, open air, and. Uh, so you're, you're 360 with the audience and it dawned on me as I stood up to talk in that huge conference hall. This is one of the only places to sit down. And my talk was around lunch. So as I'm trying to give my talk in the 360, people are just coming in to sit down to have their lunch and they're waving to other people who are coming in to do it. So trying to talk and give an engaging talk with people around you. Um, waving at other people and and having their lunch to try and talk to was the most nightmarish, the most painful talk I'd ever done. And the only thing that kept me sane is as it all finished, I happened to be walking up to the speaker above me, uh, before me, who I will not name, but he made me laugh because this was quite a high-powered person who spoke before me. And he was sort of tearing into some of one of the organizers and said, don't ever make me talk in Thunderdome again. And to me, that whenever I think back, and I think, well, I've survived Thunderdome. It wasn't a great talk, but I did get out alive. I think that's an important thing as a speaker, isn't it? You know, eventually you'll end up with some awful experience. Uh, yeah. Like the slide's not working or your notes disappearing or something. And if you can survive those, pretty much any other speech you'll ever give is. Oh, yeah. Better. And I think for me, yeah, that, you know, my formative experience at 18 was great because from there it just gets easier. So do a lot of talks and mess up, mess up early. Oh, absolutely. And plan for them to happen. Like I said, you know, my motto in much of what I do in my professional life is hope for the best, plan for the worst and have three backups. I think it is just if you know things are going to go wrong and, and not let it rattle you. Do a little bit of thinking ahead of time of how you'd bounce around it and just get, you know, the, the best thing you can give to be as a public speaker is just to have a good, healthy sense of and, and just accept it's going to be that way sometimes. And that, that's just how you earn your stripes and, and get better at it. Yeah, suffering is, is the path of enlightenment for sure. <laughs> uh, I, want, I want to talk about some of, the, uh, some, some of the industry work that you do because uh, it's pretty inspiring stuff. And, and obviously you, you use your public speaking uh, you know, to, to move some of the things that you foundered forward. Um, mm -hmm. But could you tell me a bit, little bit about... Um, the tech talent charter and some of the yeah i'd be happy there. to it's, it's very interesting stuff so having been in the space so um up to two years ago i had helped run a tech charity that worked with young people and had really good engagement with girls and found myself more and more in discussions about this diversity and tech piece and and how can we get greater diversity within the tech workforce, and in particular women as a, as a sort of lens. It's about diversity in general, but, but focusing specifically on gender because that is the most broken part of what's going yes. on. And I saw the journey that happened over the, the last, say, eight or nine years. So, so eight or nine years ago, you really had to fight to get companies to even understand that there weren't enough women in tech. And then you had to work for a year or two to get companies to understand that solving the problem had great bottom line impact as well as being the right thing to do and, and not solving it had a cost. And then what was interesting was about three years ago, there were starting to be companies, organizations, initiatives that were starting to come up with some great ideas. And 
in that, what I was starting to see is lots and lots of reinventing the wheel and, and companies doing the same thing again and again and, and starting from scratch and lots of overlap and, and, and a real, I mean, classic adoption curve. So around that time, someone called Sinead Bunting, our co-founder, uh, gathered a few of us together from people who were working in the space, said she wanted to do something, had written a charter. I was one of the ones that said, okay, I'll do it. I'm happy to help and try and do something with this. But, you know, if, if we're just going to have big roundtable events on why are there no women in, in, in tech, my head will explode. We can't do that. And if you promise me we're not going to reinvent the wheel, we'll do it. And so that was the birth of the Tech Talent Charter. And so by March of 2017, we had put together our proposal, our, our problem statement that the whole of tech pipeline is broken from, from early inspiration schools all the way to getting women yeah. um, onto the board. That uh, no single company, it's so broken, no single company can fix it themselves. No single initiative, there is no magic bullet. And only by working across the sector, big multinationals down to little startups, not-for-profits, getting the initiatives, the, um, the recruitment people involved and sharing best practice and working collaboratively, could something happen? So we'd managed to get 17 companies on board. The government got wind of this. Um, the Department of Digital Culture, Music and Sport uh, really threw support behind us and mentioned us in their digital policy that year and gave us some seed funding and, and we sort of set off. So by Christmas of last year, we'd gone from 17 to 100 companies. Um, as of the middle of August, 2018, we're at 275 companies Which across the whole of the UK. And it's been incredible growth. And we're in VoxGig, very, very happy to be to be part of that initiative as well. Absolutely. Uh, what, we're sort of, this discussion is sort of resting on an assumption that diversity is good um, but let, I mean, let, let's sort of take it back to first principles. Um, why is diversity in tech or, or in any human organization better? How, how does it allow organizations to achieve their goals more effectively? And the great thing is we've moved beyond anecdote into some yeah. real bottom line figures. And you can see there are, you know, we can doc, we've got those online on our website. There are McKinsey reports that will show that having a diverse workforce is going to improve the bottom line uh, profitability for a company, the ability to move into new markets, the ability to survive um, all of the disruption that's going on. And it makes sense. First of all, as a company, you need to understand your user, your client, your customer. And if you don't have enough diversity in your team, how are you going to be able to understand your customer? By having a more diverse team, you're going to be bringing more ideas, um, more concepts, more ways of attacking and, and tackling problems. You're going to avoid that risk of groupthink, that, that heading down the, 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 the rabbit hole. Um, it really just means that as a team, you're more resilient, you're more resourceful, you're better able to cope with the disruption that's happening across all sectors through tech. And you're better able to engage with current um, users or to engage new ones. Well, I think that, that you know, certainly from our perspective, we see the diversity issue as, uh, as quite wide because it, it also includes people who uh, can only work part-time, 
Um, it's also about supporting parents. It's also about supporting different levels of disability, yeah. uh, neurodiversity, all that sort of thing. I think there's an awful lot of wealth of human potential. But Absolutely. Well, we, we often talk about Blue Tech Talent Charter. This is about diversity inclusion in general, using um, gender as a lens, as a starting point. But for our companies, we're encouraging them to think in that wider piece. And I'm really excited that a lot of companies are starting to talk about, instead of diversity inclusion, talking about inclusion and diversity. Because I think if a company gets inclusion right, diversity follows. And it is diversity in its widest sense. It's um, it's not just men versus women, it's different kinds of men with different kinds of yeah. background, different kinds of approaches, different ways of thinking. And the sorts of things we were just talking about, that ability to get the most from people who are part-time, working flexibly, working from out of the office. It's, the studies are showing this isn't just what women want. We know that there's stats suggesting millennials want it, and actually more people our age are starting to want this. And if you also think about the changing role uh, and even definition of work and the coming disruptions that could be coming to AI, et cetera, more and more people are going to want and need that flexibility and to offer that flexibility. And I think, you know, it, it also takes those other boxes of what we'd want to be. It is more environmentally friendly and sound to work in that way. It is more, it is more efficient and effective to work in that way. And I love the way you at VoxGig are really pioneering in that and really thinking in a different way and building that from the ground up. You know, that's a great opportunity, I think, for startups and for smaller businesses to really start boiling it in as soon as possible. Big companies are trying to do it, but it's much harder because you're trying to turn a very, very big ship. But the companies, yeah. I've, not, I've heard companies give all kinds of wonderful stories about the benefits. And while people will talk about problems along the way, I've yet to hear a company say, you know what, that was a complete disaster. We'd never do it again. It's just, it's not easy, but nothing that's valuable, nothing that's truly transformational is. No, no. And, and it's, it's a, it's a, a um, multi-generational activity. It's one of those things where you have to plant seeds, especially with the pipeline issue. Uh, you know, this is going to take several iterations of the, the technology cycle and several decades, I think, to, to ultimately yeah. get to where we want to go. One particular challenge uh, that we face as a startup is around the funding environment. Um, venture capitalists in particular are very yeah. conscious, um, but also the forces on a startup, you, you know, to have a very small, uh, highly efficient workforce. Uh, are very difficult to counteract when you have, want to have diversity as, as a value as well. Um, and that's something we struggle with. And I don't have, I really don't there have is no, There is no easy answer. Uh, I mean, it, it is the hardest thing to try and do when, and I think it's particularly that early startup stage where really you're just trying to get things moving. And if you're not careful, it feels like a distraction or, a, or just a nice to have. Um, but it, it does go back to, it takes founders like yourself to have that conviction that it will pay off. And I, I don't think you can completely get it right. It's not that we're saying, okay, absolutely don't hire anyone if you can't get this and this, but it's being willing to go about the game in different ways. I'd also say it is why I feel so passionately about the Tech Talent Charter, because this is where the small companies can benefit from the learning curve that other companies have gone through 
but they don't have to figure it all out themselves. And we're even starting to find in some areas, because we're doing this not just in, in, in the London bubble, but across the UK, at regional and local levels, I'm seeing some really interesting ecosystems coming up where companies might work together to make some of this a little bit easier. So yes, I mean, it, it's sort of every size company and context brings with it pluses and minuses. From a startup perspective, it's much easier to bake it in from the start at the heart of your culture, but the pressures are that you don't have the bandwidth to do that easily. The big companies, they got lots of bandwidth, but they need it because changing things is so incredibly hard because they're such huge organizations getting to the heart of changing things um, and, and adopting a startup mentality to, to try and move through that is essential. Absolutely. Let me ask you about some of the, the some tactics that are, that are used perhaps in large organizations. Um, what's your take on the effectiveness of things um, like uh, quotas and things like that? Ooh, yeah. And I know that's a difficult question, but... No, no, no. And I think what I love about working in the Tech Talent Charter is there is no single answer. So I know some of our companies have talked about how they have set quotas, targets, and it has made a huge difference. And they see it as not as positive discrimination, but leveling the pay fit. I've also heard from companies that say it just didn't work. It created the wrong sort of behaviors and the um, resentment within. For both of those, I always go back to, you've got to start with inclusion and you've got to start with where your company is and take everyone with you um, so that this doesn't feel like a zero-sum game, that, that those who are not diverse as such, quote-unquote, whatever that means, don't feel that they're losing out because you're bringing in other things. Um, what we tend to talk about is moving towards things and looking at processes and, and setting things around that. So, for example, we are not going to require, but we encourage our companies to think about the, the concept of the Rooney Rule. We, this came out of the US. It's been dabbled with here in different sectors here in the UK. But the way in which we phrase it is, we'd love for companies to be working towards a concept that whenever they are shortlisting for a tech role, that they're aiming to have at least one woman on that shortlist. So it's not a quota on who you hire. It's a measure of how your diversity is going in terms of your recruitment strategies. Okay, and you, and you and call this the, the Rooney Rule? Yes, this apparently, I, despite my accent um, being a, a strange hybrid American-British, I've lived here for 30 years, so I missed this in the U.S. Okay. But actually in the U.S., um, in uh, American football, there was incredible problems around diversity at that sort of senior coaching level. And so to address it, they put into regulation a Rooney rule that said they could not appoint at that senior level unless there was a diverse shortlist. Now, you can Google that and find as many company organizations and, and people who've said that's an amazing breakthrough and it's changing things in the NFL and as many people saying it was terrible and drove it. You know, so I, I think it's why we will shy away from hard rules. So quite often, so for example, Tech Talent Charter, we don't require set targets. What companies have to say to, to verify in order to join is that they have what we call people, plan, practice, and data. And that's the key bit. So the companies have a senior signatory who are committed to make something happen. If you don't have someone at the top who's really bought in, it's not going to get anywhere. Exactly. But they have to have a plan. These things don't happen by magic. But it's not a plan that we give a pro forma. Because anything, if, if we gave companies a pro forma, 
it would be bolted on. And we all know in business, things that are bolted on fall off by Q2, okay, in the just yeah. average running of business. So it has to be something that's baked in and is appropriate to the company because what a company, like what Bob's gig would need to work on will be very different from what the BBC might need. The sharing of practices where it's valuable for companies and where they learn from each other. But then the last bit is data. And this is a hard bit, but it's important. We're not setting targets, but what we say is if you're not measuring it, you're not valuing it. And how do you know if you're making impact? So companies are committed to sharing annually with us a set of data around both lead and lag factors. So how many women they have on their tech teams, but also things like how many women were they, how many times were they able to shortlist a woman? Now, this terrifying data set, most companies is a sharp intake of breath that is protected by NDA. It's anonymized and aggregated because what we do with this is that we are going to be publishing a national benchmarking report that companies can use to understand where they're ahead or behind. So that's a long way of me answering. I don't think definitely at national level, I'd be very worried about setting mandatory targets or quotas. But I do think, for example, the gender pay reporting has started some really valuable things. Having data that can be interrogated can be as powerful, if not more powerful than things like quotas. I think you're right. Isn't there that cliche, uh, you get what you measure? Yeah, it's, it's a much absolutely. safer way of, of tackling the problem. Um, yeah. And in, in a way, you know, this, I think this, this space for similar data collection in the conference and events industry, the, the tech oh, yeah. industry, um, that's something I'll, <laughs> I'll ponder on for a bit. But, I mean, you know, a lot of conferences these days have codes of conduct and anti-harassment and diversity policies and all that type of stuff. But there's still no data. Yeah. To support those goals. Uh, and data is scary at first until you start gathering it. You know, I, I do find, and I remember someone saying to us, oh, when you publish your first annual report, it'd be a real cause for celebration, won't it? And I sort of laughed and said, no, you know, if, if it's a cause for celebration the first year we published data, then why were we needed here? It's yeah. going to be bad. And we look at a lot of what happened in the gender pay reporting. That's not a good news report that, that came out. But it began bringing to the surface the sorts of discussions and actions that need to happen. It's that transparency that starts moving on. And it's hard to do that. You know, we could have done like the GDPR where you had to name and do it. But I think for us, for what we're trying to do, we're trying to give tools to our employers um, that they can use. Um, and we'll look and see, you know, yeah. and we'll, we'll continue to listen to people about what needs to happen next. I think you're right. In some ways, uh, even if companies and, and leadership is disposed towards improving diversity, they, a lot of the time they have no idea how to go about it. Uh, yeah. And, well, and I think this is the other bit that's been interesting for us. So when we do our various events and the work we do with partners, this gathering of best practice, I mean, we're doing something, nothing, you know, it's nothing more glamorous or sexy than an open Google Doc. But we're creating this open playbook where everyone can be sharing what they're doing because there's no single magic bullet. What will work in Vox gig may not work at the company down the road, but there may be one idea they have that you could use in yours. So this idea of sharing best practice is, is invaluable. And I'm hearing companies, I'm hearing big multinationals get those aha moments working with startups. And I'm hearing startups and SMEs really scribbling down. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try that from what they're hearing from corporate. The other thing we're doing is, you know, a lot of people say, but are there, who can we ask about this? Who can we get to help us? Where's the initiative to do this? And we realize there's no national map of this. 
So again, yeah. in an open, an open forum, we're creating a directory of all of the initiatives, programs, companies that, that organizations can use to help them. And really just scratching the surface, we've got now over 250 initiatives, programs, companies that can be paid for, sponsored, or free. And we are mapping it at what's at national level, regional, and local. And it's growing every day. To again, I hope, remove that reinventing the wheel. You know, I was, it was breaking my heart watching companies reinvent something that someone had already started at another country. And that, that loss of momentum and that sort of waste in, in, in reinventing the wheel, it makes my head explode. And it's why we always talk about, you know, our mantra, we're, gonna, we're here to connect the dots, not reinvent. And I do think if you look across the UK, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I actually think all the pieces are out there of the puzzle that we need to solve. We've just never had a chance to try and put them together. And I've got companies, even companies that you would normally by day see as competitors working together to try and find some solutions and, and really make a difference here. It feels, it feels like there's the changes in the air for sure, which is, yeah. which is really encouraging. Before we finish up, uh, let's just return to your personal story for a minute. Um, you started life as a teacher. I did. Uh, how did you end up in IT? <laughs> I, I think I'm, a, I, I'm one of those. I remember hearing the stat about kids that uh, if you look at kids these days between in their life, they're not going to have three to four jobs. They're probably going to have three to four careers. And that's sort of what's happened to me. Mm. My career only looks strategic if you look at it retrospectively. Um, <laughs> and, it, and I'm not done yet. When people ask me, what do I want to be when I grow up? I don't know because I'm not going to stop growing. I'm still trying to figure that out. So I was originally in the U.S., trained to be a teacher, um, but was desperate to travel. I managed to get a scholarship to come to the U.K. to work on my master's. That was one of the first times they were screaming for teachers in London. So I took a job, I thought, for a year. One year turned into 20 as I moved up through education to become a head teacher. Um, but that happened very fast. I became a head teacher young for, for the time. And after being in that for six years, tech had become more and more important. Um, as I saw, that was back when tech was really just getting into education. Okay. And I had started working with uh, an organization that was doing Computer Club for Girls. Love that. Um, after being a head for six years, this organization said, well, come work with us, with government companies to try and do something with tech and, and young people, which I did. Then I met the co-founder for a charity called Apps for Good, which at the time had reached 40 kids and teaching kids as young as 10, as old as 18 how to come up with an idea and take it to market and build an app. Um, we did that. We grew that to reach 75,000 kids in about five years. Loved oh, that. Yeah. And I realized it, it's the, one of the things of age that I love. I, I've learned what I'm good at, what I love and what I'm not. And I'm good at starting with that early idea and getting it working. And once it's working, I'm less good. I'm not a good publishing person. <laughs> Okay. So we'd always known and talked about perhaps are good. We would get it to a point and then I would step back. So I did. And that is just when Tech Talent Charter was, was really starting off. And so when I said to our founding group, shall I just take this here and see where we can get with it in a year? Um, that's what I'm doing now. And, and so for me, the way I describe my career, for, for the older people in your listening audience, you'll remember dot-to-dot -dot puzzles. Remember those as a kid? Oh, yes, yes. yes yeah. yeah. 
And, you know, when you're a kid and before you've figured out the game, it's this challenge of just figuring out where is number two, where is number three, where is number four. And then as you step back, you can see the picture. That's really what my career has been. And, and as I've got older, I'm happier and happier with that. I'm always clear what I'm looking for, where the challenge is, and when it's time for me to look for that next challenge. And, you know, that didn't come easily. And sometimes it is just sweating it of thinking, oh, my God, where is number three? Um, but once you're comfortable with that approach, so now I do what's called um, a portfolio career. So Tech Talent Charter is a big part of that. But I also yeah. do workshops, I do coaching, I have some clients that I do some freelance work around innovation. That variety suits me down to the ground. So um, that's, that's the crazy chaos that's become my career. I think, um, I think founders uh, often end up doing that. They, they're, uh, they cover a large amount of territory. They're, they're kind of pretty good at a lot of things, but not, can't really go deep. Yeah. One thing, and, and founders synthesize things yeah. to make something new, I think. And I think from, from me, moving across sectors gives me the same sort of insight that it had being a foreigner. You know, as a foreigner, you, when you come to a new country, you ask a lot of questions of why is this and how do we do that and why is that happening that, that natives never think about. And I have found as I've moved from education into tech, from the startup and the third sector piece, you bring with it a lot of questions that someone who's only ever worked in that sector might not see. And I think there's some really interesting things comes out of that. Well, I, I guess I have to ask you then, what, what's the weirdest thing you noticed about tech when you moved into it? I mean, there's a bunch of weird oh. stuff, but. <laughs> I, I guess it was actually when you would encounter that, that, that strange domain of the white male. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the sorts of things that they just don't get, you know, that they just don't get that sense of diversity and where you get those deaf questions. But no, I, I, you know, getting to realize that for, for a lot of tech companies, that ping pong table is an essential piece of office equipment. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I think, I think what I love, because it's all so different and it's all so strange that it all feels normal. So I, I don't know, maybe I've been too long in tech over the last seven or eight years. So everything feels normal and possibly I'm doing something that if someone comes along would think, dear God, that's insane. We've, we've sucked you into our chaos. That's what's happened. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm, I'm very much at home there. Wonderful. Debbie, thank you so much. Uh, it's been really, really great. Um, hugely interesting talk. Um, really, really great to talk to you. Thanks so much. It's been really lovely. Wonderful. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of Fireside with Voxkick. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxkick.com podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, one you can also learn. Visit foxgig.com newsletter to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at 
voxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward.